0: Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet, and both thirsts would be slaked. I I was thinking when I was driving in about uh, the... It occurred to me, like, right after I was ordained a deacon, the first time I ever, like, preached as a deacon. It was the day after I was ordained. So I was ordained October 25th. Um, and then that next Sunday, uh, I came here. Mary, do you remember that? I came here. The teens were downstairs for, yeah. like, life night or something. or They were doing something on Sunday night.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, I, like, I exposed the Blessed Sacrament downstairs, and I preached on, like, the spousal love of Jesus. So, like, the very first time I ever preached was in this house on the bridegroom, uh, which is really kind of cool. I realized that when I was driving down here. And then I was also thinking about the uh uh Claire, your daughter asked me to prom her senior year, okay? Oh my I know, right? And uh and she connections. has so many connections, right? She had a coral dress and I had to get a coral vest that matched the coral dress um. and I, I I totally nailed it. Um and because I was such a good prom date, she had to marry a guy named Patrick's which she did, right? So there's a lot of bridegroom connections. Also awesome.
1: very um, I um, a best person to go with her on prom and, and, and
0: yeah. marry her for life. Man, she and she paid the heck out of this steak that I ordered that night. That was really great. So, anyway, no, I'm, I, I just, I, I'm so looking forward to this. And I just know that, uh, I don't know, we might be here a while. I got like just so much I just wanted to share from my heart. And I, I mean, I hope you don't have like a lot that you have to get back to. So we might just be sitting here. I might get another beer halfway I through. Say, I don't like know. I'm
1: take a picture right here yeah. of the beer and the empty. Yeah,
0: okay. I, I, you know, I, I'm hiding. Yeah, we'll we'll hide this one. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, this is this is like my favorite setting to give to give talks to. I love being able to preach to women, and in particular, just like women who know me and like my story and where I've been. And I, I just like I didn't know you were coming, Jen. So like seeing you come in, I was like, ah oh, shoot, Jen Ricard, right? Like, <laughs> Jen, who was like my, my first introduction to TOB, right, so when I was a junior in high school, I don't know what talk you had given, but it was like, you were my first TOB teacher, um, and uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm glad you're here, I'm glad all of you are here, so um, I'm going to put my beer down, and let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, Amen. 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 Lord Jesus Christ. Son of the living God, word made flesh, splendor of the Father, heart of God, Lord, we come to you tonight knowing and expecting that you are going to do big things here, but you want to communicate something very beautiful, something that's at the very center of your heart the very deepest glowing coal, the deepest ember from which every other spark comes. This is the story of your spousal love for us, your identity as bridegroom, and our identity as bride, as church, your beloved, the one for whom you gave up everything, You forfeited heaven, a madness that we cannot understand, but for which we are so grateful. Holy Spirit, pour forth in abundance the gift of receptivity into each of our hearts tonight. In particular, Lord, I ask that you would inspire my mind and my heart and my memories, my intellect that you would use the instrumentality of my priesthood to communicate your beauty and truth. And we place ourselves into the womb of Mary, from which all good things come, where we are most safe, where we are most loved, As we pray together, hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Holy Mary, Mary, Mother of God, God. pray Pray for us sinners, sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Amen. St. John Paul the Great.
1: Pray for us.
0: Our Lady of Guadalupe. Pray for us. Good St. Joseph. Pray pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So... Um, I think it's only fair to warn you that we're, we're going to go deep tonight, like deep, deep, deep tonight. I was thinking about um, like what I had, what I have prepared. And I was thinking how like this is I've never given a talk like this uh, because so often, like whether it's homilies or talks, it's it's one. I, I've got a time limit. <laughs> number one. Even though I really push it. Those of you listen to my homilies, you know I push that time limit. Number two, it's usually some topic that's like tangentially related to Theology of the Body or something like that. Um, but quite honestly, there's very few Christians, there's very few Catholics who are in a position to, to actually receive the gold, if I could put it that way. Um, my classmate, Father James Colway, any of you who've been to St. Barnabas, you know him. He's the parochial vicar there um but he uh, when we were in the seminary in all of our classes and often there was a lot of classes that the reading left a lot to be desired um and James would get frustrated we'd all get frustrated we'd be reading theologians and saints or theologians and um different writers uh, that it was just like what are why are we why are we wasting time reading this guy and James would be like can't they just give us the gold just give us the gold give us like the richness of the tradition give us like give us the gold um Tonight I want to give you the gold. I want to give you the gold. And uh and I I mean I don't I, I don't know what our time limit is, but I'm just gonna go. And I if you gotta go, you, you get up and go. I won't be offended, but um I just uh I just have a lot of, in my heart that I wanna share. So does that sound good? Is that a deal? Sound good? All right, good deal. Um just by show of hands, who's read the book? The Brant Petrie, Christ the Bridegroom. Okay, so the people who haven't read it, Mary April, Meg, okay, all right, so alright. Um Cool, that just, that's helpful. Um, okay, so we're, I, I, I think we'll have time for questions at the end, so I'll, I'm going to save questions from the book at the end. But I do think, so Jen share with me a handful of the questions that I guess you've already kind of thought about. And I do think I'm going to hit on a lot of the questions you've already thought about, so um, hopefully we'll save questions or whatever for the end. But All right, so this is where I want to start. Now, when we speak about Christ and his identity as bridegroom, what we're talking about here is the privileged analogy that more so than any other analogy, more so than any other image, best expresses the power, the intimacy, the longing. And I use this word in my prayer, but I, and I really mean it, the madness of God's love for us, right? Like when we speak about Christ and his identity as bridegroom, what we're talking about is the madness of his love the reckless love, right? We've, we've been hearing that song over the last like two years. That song has rocked the, the heart of the bride, the church, the, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, right? Corey Asbury, who wrote that song, holy smokes, man, he's so articulated so beautifully, the heart of the bridegroom. It's this, it's an unfathomable love. It's overwhelming, never-ending, reckless, right? Like, what is his love like, that's what we're talking about. Like, this God that, we're, that, that we are in relationship with because of our baptism, because of our faith, what is his love like is the question, right? The least inadequate analogy, the least inadequate image, the least stumbling, mumbling image is that of this crazy, insane bridegroom, right? Right? So the bridegroom is the expression of the deepest identity of the Father's heart for us. It's the deepest desire of the Father's heart for us. I was talking to some uh, some missionaries who were from Damascus. They were at my parish last night. We had this parent meeting for confirmation uh, for the for the parents for the who's doesn't matter. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, so these uh, these kids were asking. These missionaries were asking me um, like like Father, like what is the Sacred Heart? I'm like that's a good question. I said. So the heart, the heart is the organ of, it's the seat of desire, right? Like the fact that God has a heart is telling us that God has desire. Like Christ is the heart of the Father in flesh. He is, he is the heart of the Father expressed. And any saint, any mystic, anybody who's ever seen that heart, all they can barely do is stammer out one thing. All they say is fire. That heart is filled with fire. Every image of the Sacred Heart has fire coming out of it, right? And and particularly coming out of the wounds in the heart, that the love of God comes to us through the wounds of Jesus, because he is the heart incarnate, right? That's who he is. One of the things I asked, just kind of off the cuff one time in a homily at Sacred Heart, this was months ago, but I, I, I was just suddenly struck in the midst of preaching, just kind of as a preacher, one of the things you, you're, you're attentive to, at least I'm attentive to, is is the, is the posture of the bride as I'm preaching. Like, is she, is she with me? Is she tracking with me? Does she know what I'm saying? And, and this one particular homily, I just felt like they were just not with me. And I remember asking, um, like, like why do you, what do you think we're doing here? And the follow-up question was, like, where do you suppose this relationship with Christ is going? right like where do you think this is headed like how, how deep do you suppose he wants to go with you how deep like how deep do you suppose he wants to go do you like how much of his love do you suppose he wants you to experience and know like how much of his heart do you suppose he wants to share with you and how much of your heart do you suppose he's interested in right like how deep do you want how deep do you think he wants to go because i think many many people Good, well-meaning Catholics, daily mass Catholics, wild women Catholics, maybe, I don't know, other, who knows. But I think a lot of people carry unconsciously um, this sort of idea that says, like, well, this is how deep Jesus and I are going. Like, this is, this is, this is, I've defined the, the limits of the relationship, and it's, it's cordial, it's, it's good, It's cordial, it's meaningful, but it's plateaued. Um, This limitation mindset, right? The the, the bridegroom, though, when you come to start knowing the bridegroom, that like when when you start realizing that the, the identity Jesus reveals himself as his bridegroom, what we begin to see is the infinite depths of his love and pursuit. And the only governor, the only limiting principle is us. That's it. The only limitation to what we will experience from the bridegroom's heart is us. It's how close are we willing to let him get? How much territory are we willing to let him claim? Um, We're going to talk about this, but like, how naked am I willing to become? I think there's so many people who have this plateau mindset, but that's not the heart of Jesus. He never gets to a point where he looks at us and says, all right, you're, that's mm-hmm. good. We're going to put you on cruise control, okay. and I'll see you in about five years when, like, something happens in your life. There's no cruise control. It is this constantly pressing forward heart. I was so struck years ago when I was on uh, that 10-week spirituality intensive. Some, some of you know I went on at IPF, Institute for Peace Formation Information, down at uh, Creighton University in Omaha, um, there is the statue of the, the sacred heart of Jesus in this one courtyard where I used to walk and pray a rosary at night. Um, I used to call Matt. I used to be like, where I would get on the phone, I would call him. But the, um, what I remember noticing one day, just like, it just struck me, was how every image, well, like, I noticed in that statue, and then I've now noticed it in subsequent statues of the sacred heart, but Jesus is always, in the sacred heart, he has one foot in front of the other, like, every image of the Sacred Heart, he's always walking towards you. Like, he is always, like, on the move towards you. There's never a moment where he's just like, let's just, like, sit on a couch and just, like, just relax for a little bit. Now, that heart is, is always pressing in. And it's us who freak out. It's us who say, whoa, 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 that, that's enough. I can't take it anymore. That's too close. I'm just, I, we're just going to stay here because this feels safe. This feels like what I can handle. But no, there's a madness, there's truly a madness, a a terrifying madness to God's pursuit of love for us. Look at quote one there on your sheet. Um, This is Pope Benedict. He says, Eros is that force within us which does not allow the lover to remain in himself, but it moves him to become one with the beloved. The desire for the true the good, the beautiful. Eros is part of God's very heart, the passion of the love of the bridegroom. And Pope Benedict said this, this. This was shocking. This was shocking. This was in Deus Caritas S, his, his document on God's love. Right, We all maybe remember this, that, that in Greek there's four words for love. Eros, agape, storge, and philia. They all describe different kinds of love. Agape is the sort of self-sacrificial love. It's the love that we all associate with God, this emptying kind of love. Philia is kind of friendship love. Storge is family love. But Eros is this passionate love. It's the longing for fulfillment, right? It's the restlessness. It's the longing for the, the infinite, the infinitely true and good and beautiful. And like Pope Benedict, what he said in this document is not only does God have agape for us, but he also has Eros for us, this passionate pursuit. He says this, the Almighty awaits the yes of his creatures as a young bridegroom awaits the yes of his bride. He continues, he says, on the cross, Eros is made manifest for us. Is there more mad Eros than that which led the Son of God to to make himself one with us? even to the point of suffering as his own, the consequences of our our offenses. Like on the cross, in the bridegroom, what you see is the madness of God's love. The sheer madness. Like, We're so used to seeing crucifixes. We're so used to seeing the image of God pinned up on a Roman instrument of torture that we don't see it anymore. But that right there is sheer madness that God would choose to go there, right? Where do you get a nail big enough to put God on a cross? You don't. They don't sell those at Home Depot, right? Or Lowe's. The only reason he was there is because he wanted to be there for the sake of the bride. That's how he got there. And it's sheer madness. So this analogy of Jesus as bridegroom, this imagery of the bridal, the, the spousal love of Jesus is it's an analogy, right, which means that, like, the reality that it's pointing to far exceeds, infinitely exceeds the reality that we can comprehend. Here, here's the image I have for this. Like, so when it comes to, like, the church's dogmas, when it comes to these analogies, so we all just saw this, how the 9-11 um, memorial things that, you know, the 20th anniversary, how, like, on 9-11, they shine those two big spotlights up from the, the, the Twin Tower Memorial, right? these brilliant beams, right? And if you start with your eyes on the bottom of it, it's very clear. There's the light. I can see the beam. And you track up. And as it goes up further and further, it just becomes less and less clear to the point where it just imperceptibly like fades into sheer darkness. Like that's, that's what analogies are, these theological analogies. like, it's pointing to something true, but like the reality that it's ultimately pointing to, it's like so far beyond what we can actually comprehend. But the analogy is still true. It's still true. I think that's so important. The analogy is true. Alright, so this is where we're gonna start. We're gonna have a few starts, but this is the second start, alright? <laughs> second quote: The entire Christian life. This is one of my favorite quotes from the Catechism. Gender card, your favorite quote too. 1617. The entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ in the church. If I could beg you to just contemplate one quote, just soak in that. Like that, is, like that is Holy Mother Church telling you something so profoundly true that like the implications of that have yet to be felt in the church. There is so much we do in the church, so many ministries we do in the church, so much theology, teaching, preaching that has yet to be touched by this. But this, this, is, this is like the heart of the catechism in some ways, right? The entire Christian life, leaving no part excluded, the entire Christian life is branded, is stamped, has the, de- the genetic encoding of the spousal love, the nuptial relationship, this bridegroom-bride sort of thing, like throughout the whole thing. The thing that makes sense of the whole thing is this. The spousal relationship of Christ and the church, which means that the primary task, consider this, the primary task of the spiritual life of your lives as women, as committed Christians, the primary task of the spiritual life is the integration of the spousal lens into every dimension of my relationship to Christ and the church. Does that make sense, right? Like, if the entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ and the church— then the task of the spiritual life is integrating that lens or having that lens be the integrating lens through which and by which I see and experience every dimension of my life as a disciple. Like, how do I experience the corporal and spiritual works of mercy? Somehow it needs to be through the spousal lens. How do I experience when the church canonizes a new saint? How do I understand that? How do I experience mass? How do I experience Eucharistic processions? Like, this lens is the integrating lens of discipleship. Now look, some of, some of you ladies, like, you're all in different points in your journey when it comes to this integration process. Some of you, like, reading this book, there, there might have been moments that were like, like, whoa, like, I don't, I don't know about that, right? Like, we're at very different points, right? We're at very different points. Some of you, this might be like, I'm right where, we, I'm right there with you, Brant, keep going, I love what you're saying, um, yeah, we're all at very different points, and many of you still might be like struggling with a level of discomfort. I want to show you an image. Um, I have this image hanging in my office, but it's uh, an image of uh, Bernini's sculpture. It's called St. Teresa in Ecstasy. Right, so St. Teresa of Avila, she's a doctor of the church, one of mm-hmm. three women doctors, four women doctors? Four now. Four now? Who's the fourth? Hildegard? Oh, Is she the fourth? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Therese, Teresa, Hildegard, uh, no. Catherine of Siena, Catherine. that's it. So Therese, or Teresa of Avila, uh, she is quoted over and over again in the catechism when it comes to prayer. She's, she's a doctor of the church when it comes to prayer and the mystical life. This sculpture is depicting a moment that happened in her life. It's called the transverberation, where an angel appeared to her with a dart, a flaming arrow, piercing her heart over and over again. And in her journal, she described this moment. She said, at the same time, I was experiencing such agony that I wanted it to stop immediately and such ecstasy that I wanted it to go on forever. So this angel, right? What kind of, um, what does this angel remind you of? Think of like just secular culture. What does the angel remind you of? Valentine's Day and Cupid. Who said Valentine's Day? Yeah, and Cupid. Yeah, exactly. So Cupid... Okay, pop quiz. Cupid is the Roman god of love, yes. What's the Greek god who corresponds to Cupid? Who knows? Eros. 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 What you are seeing here is a depiction of what it looks like when Eros pierces the heart in prayer and in love. Okay, like, I, I should zoom in on her face, but like... It's a little
1: uncomfortable.
0: Okay, I'm good. Okay, out. then you're seeing it. You're yeah. seeing it. I'm kind of embarrassed, like that. Yeah, yeah. Like if they had cigarettes in the 15th century, she probably <laughs> <laughs> smoked a cigarette after this, right? Right? Okay. Yeah, that's. This is what you need to like. You're you're seeing it then. Good. Right? Okay. Exactly. Yes. So this is this is the this is the quest this is the, the, the not the challenge but this is the invitation. Like, what you're seeing there is like the integration of the physical and the spiritual. What you're seeing there is like what this relationship with the Lord is pointing us to, right? So like consider for a second, like your own personal relationships with Jesus, Right? you all have your own different walks with the Lord. I just want you to pause and consider for a second. Like what is, if you were asked to describe just think to yourself rhetorically, what is the character of his love for you? Like, what is his love like for you? What is it like to be loved by him? Like, when like, or where have I experienced being loved by him? I think a lot of us, you know, maybe like the image is that of friend, or that of companion, or that of deep confidant, or Maybe the image that's primary is that of mercy, right? Or Christ as judge, or Christ as encourager, or Christ—you know, fill in the blank. But bridegroom, lover of your soul, ravisher of hearts, one who knows me so deeply. So the invitation is—is is one of. Um, growth like to, to know that like the Lord but the fact that you're here is evidence that the Lord is drawing you into these depths and to not be afraid of it to not be afraid of it I meant to bring tonight um, I have a little vial of nard and I meant to bring it because I wanted you to smell it but mm. I, I forgot because I was racing to over to Jen's house to have a margarita before I came here <laughs> and I forgot the nard so, next time we do this, I'll bring the art. Anyway, uh, so for the third start for tonight, I want to start here. You mentioned the anointing of Bethany.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, this is where we're going to start this. Uh, like, the anointing of Bethany that happens six days prior to the Passover. This event is recorded in John and Mark and Matthew. I'm not, I'm pretty positive it's not in Luke. So, all right, so six days prior to, before the Passover, Jesus comes to Bethany While he's reclining at table, it says a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of costly, genuine nard. Depending on the gospel, it says spike nard or nard. So with genuine, costly nard, and she breaks the alabaster jar, and she pours this perfumed oil upon his body. And Jesus says, she did it to prepare me for my burial. And then he says, amen, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done for me will be spoken of in memory of her. Jesus is pointing to this event, this moment, saying, like, like for all time, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done here will be proclaimed and spoken of in her, uh, of her in memory of her. She pours this nard over Jesus' body. In one of the gospels, it's on his feet. Another gospel says on his head. I, I like the head version. I like the image of just like Jesus just dripping mm-hmm. with this nard all over his head. All right. So what is nard? So nard is this gloriously perfumed, fragrant oil that's made from a very rare flower that grows in the Himalayas. Okay, so think of the ancient world. How are you going to get that? Like that's a very complex trading route to get that thing to you. So it's a very expensive, very expensive um, uh, oil. Right. And it says she pours a liter of this juice, a liter, picture a liter. A liter of this juice over Jesus' head. Okay. I wish I had brought the dank stuff because it is so pungent. It is so pungent. Okay? Very fragrant. It's very beautiful. But it's just like, whoo, you, you can't like, you know, got to keep it out here. Think about this. Like colognes, perfumes, they're sold by the liter? Yeah? No? They're sold by the what? The ounce. They're sold by the ounce. Okay, so I, I don't wear a cologne, you know, because I'm a celibate. But I looked up a, a cologne online today, Clive Christian Original, collection number one. Okay, it's a 50-milliliter bottle, sells for $1,000. Okay, a 50-milliliter bottle, sells for $1,000. I don't know if that's a deal or not, but that sounds <laughs> insane to me. All right, so, so this woman didn't pour like 50, mill- she poured a liter on his head, right? And he says, in doing this, she did it prepare me for my burial. And wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she's done for me will be spoken of in memory of her. Like in other words, like this has to be very important. This has got to be highlighting something so important. So what is biblically speaking the significance of Nard? Nard shows up in the Bible in two books. Well two two places. The, this anointing event in the in the New Testament and one other book. Anybody want to guess which other book it shows up in? Esther. Not Esther. Song of Songs, Song of Songs, which is the steamiest of the steamies, right? It has got all the great, you know, Christian uh, Old Testament pickup lines, you know, like, hey baby, your belly's like a bushel of wheat. You got teeth like newly shorn ewes, twins coming up out of the water. In other words, you got all your teeth, baby, I love that. All right, so... Song of Songs, the nard, biblically speaking, is the fragrance of the bride, is the fragrance of the bride. Specifically, it's the fragrance of the bride opening herself, both physically and spiritually, to the bridegroom. It's what the bride's openness smells like, nard. That's, That's the significance of nard, right? So Song of Songs says this, while the king was upon his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. That song of songs 112, or this one. Uh, if I can read it, put the light off. How sweet is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips distill nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under, my, under your tongue. The scent of your garments is like the scent of Lebanon. A garden locked, a garden locked, we'll come back to that, is my sister, my bride. A garden locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits. Henna with nard, nard and saffron. Calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all chief spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water. Ever hear that phrase, well of living water? And flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden. Let its fragrance be wafted abroad. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat of its choicest fruits. Did you catch how many times the word nard was spoken there? Twice. It's repeated twice. Henna with nard, nard and saffron. Henna with nard, nard and saffron. This is fascinating. The the Song of Songs is the center of the Bible. More or less, if you were to take your Bible and, and crack it in half, the center of that Bible is the Song of Songs. And the center of the center verse-wise, of the Song of Songs is that verse. And the center of that verse is the couplet, nard, comma, nard. Nard, it was Mikhail Waldstein who, who translated John Paul II's uh, Polish, trans, or Polish um, manuscript of Theology of the Body. It was Mikhail Waldstein who pointed out that nard, he said, is the end of the first half of the Bible, And nard is the beginning of the second half of the Bible. Nard is so significant. Nard is what Jesus smells like going into Passion Week, which the Eastern Church calls the week of the Bridegroom. And nard is what Jesus smells like when he comes out of the tomb on the morning of the resurrection. Nard, nard, this double, this couplet. So why is the Song of Songs the center of the Bible? So the Bible begins, those of you who've read the book, you know this, this spousal imagery, this nuptial imagery is so very important because the Bible begins with the marriage of a couple in earthly paradise, right? Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, which um, Eden, uh, Christopher West, he's, he's, he loves etymology, and he's, he's the one who pointed this out. He says, the, the best the biblical scholars have done with translating the word Eden, he says its, its closest translation is fertile pleasure park. Which makes me pissed that we ever left it. So, Fertile Pleasure Park. We were made for the Fertile Pleasure Park, y'all.
1: Come on.
0: We just all we got is like Cedar Point, you know? I want the fast pass to the Fertile Pleasure Park. Come on. All right. So, Fertile Pleasure Park. All right, so the Bible begins with this couple in an earthly paradise. The Bible ends with the marriage of Christ the Lamb and the Church in the book of Revelation. So the bookends of the Bible is the spousal relationship of a husband and wife, bridegroom and bride, right? So Pope Benedict, look at quote number three. He says this, speaking about the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs ultimately describes God's relation to man and man's relation to God, which is pretty unbelievable when you consider that it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> Jake, can you verify in the Protestant Bible or not? The <laughs> only yeah, <laughs> only book in the Bible that does not have God in it. Pope Benedict says the Song of Songs ultimately describes God's relation to man and man's relation to God. Thus, the Song of Songs became an expression of the essence of biblical faith that man can indeed enter into union with God, his primordial aspiration. I am just wrecked by this quote. Like this just is so powerful to me. Like Pope Benedict, so many people had such a just awful image of this man. This, this, he was called, his nickname was the German Shepherd when he was the Mm -hmm. prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith. Every picture Mm -hmm. he saw of him, I mean like he is kind of smiling here, but it's still kind of a scary face. Let's just be honest, Mm -hmm. right? Like he's A very sweet-looking old man, but there's still something like, I don't know, right? Does he, like, Mm. I don't know. But here he is, Pope Benedict, the German Shepherd, saying that the Song of Songs, this steamy, nardy, nardy love poetry, this is the book, more than any other, that expresses the essence of biblical faith, right? Unbelievable, right? This book, where people get so uncomfortable when it's read, or, like, let alone read out loud in church, my God, Right? Like, I can't believe that that's allowed to be read in church. Like, holy smoke, right? This book, not the parables of Jesus, not the Psalms, not Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, not, like, not even the Gospels. The Song of Songs expresses the essence of biblical faith. Like, listen, like, we, when we talk about integration, we have to reckon with that. That's something we have to integrate. That's something we have to reckon with. One of the ancient Jewish rabbis, a guy by the name of Rabbi Akiba, he had this line in the in the um, the Mishnah, which is the collection of writings from rabbis, that he said that all scripture, meaning all the Old Testament, all scripture is holy, but the Song of Songs was the holy of holies. Right? Think about the Jerusalem Temple. We're going to talk about this more, but the temple, in the center of the temple, was the holy of holies, the center point, like where the heat was like the most intense when it came to holiness. That's where God was dwelling. It's the holy of holies. Like the essence of biblical faith, the distillation of biblical faith is this nuptial union with God himself. Nuptial union. Think of the image of Teresa, right? Nuptial union with God himself. All of this is summarized in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which just came up not too long ago, a few weeks ago, uh, in the lectionary. And, uh, I wasn't, so in the lectionary, the lectionary I think was designed by cowards because there's long versions of the scriptures, long versions of the reading, and short versions of the reading, right? So when Ephesians 5 comes up as the second reading for the Mass, there's the long version which has the wives be subordinate to your husbands, da 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 da. The short version is like, just get rid of that whole part. Just skip to the part where like husbands love your wives, right? Something like that, right? Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, he, he captures all of this in what he calls the great mystery, right? The mysterion mega in the Greek, the great mystery. So look at, look at this quote number four. This is from John Paul II. So St. Paul, he says, St. Paul's magnificent synthesis concerning the great mystery. You know what? I, I want to read this before I read this quote. I think that's helpful. Um, does someone have reading glasses? Okay, thank you. i need to borrow someone's reading glasses. Thank you. I'm just like you. Okay.
1: <laughs>
0: Ephesians 5. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. As the church is subject to Christ so that wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. However, let each, of you, each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. This part of Ephesians, Ephesians 5. Here you go, Gene, you those back. Thank you. John Paul II says, this magnificent synthesis concerning the great mystery, this connection of the first marriage in Genesis and Christ as the bridegroom, St. Paul is connecting these, saying, This first marriage. Was, always, was created in the beginning to point to and prefigure this marriage, right? And this relationship is best understood by looking to this marriage. That's what St. Paul means by this great mystery. So John Paul II, St. Paul's magnificent synthesis concerning the great mystery appears as the compendium, or summa in some sense, of the teaching about God and man which was brought to fulfillment by Christ. Like this letter, this section of the letter, John Paul II saying, like, this is a summary of the entire shebang. Like everything in here is summarized right there, right? It's a summa, right? In other words, like, like when Paul says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, when he says, this is a great mystery, and I speak in reference to Christ and the church, like the whole reality, like that whole spousal reality, John Paul II is saying like that, like that is a summary of the entire story, what everything is about. Ephesians 5 is summarizing the whole story. Look at the next quote. John Paul II goes on to say that the mystery spoken of in Ephesians 5 is great indeed as God's salvific plan for humanity. That mystery is in some sense the central theme of the whole of Revelation. Revelation. It's central reality. It is what God wishes above all to transmit to mankind in His Word. Right? Like, whoo! Like, what is it that you ask that God wishes to transmit to mankind by His Word? In a word, well, five, five words, that God wants to marry us. God wants a relationship with each of us that can be described in the least inadequate way by pointing to the analogy of earthly marriage. It's as if God, like in searching the lexicon of creation, in searching all of the imagery, in searching all of the analogies, the one that, that expressed the reality the clearest or that didn't distort it the most, it's like, it's like that of a husband and wife in the depth of their intimacy, in the depth and the beauty of their love, and their life-givingness, the two-in-one flesh, all of it. He's like, that's what I want for you and me. Like the entire Bible is telling this love story, right? Between God and humanity, that the deepest desire in God's heart is not just merely to live in personal relationship or friendship with us, right? One of my good buddies is this wonderful Protestant. And and I remember when we were, you know, when I was still in the beginning of seminary, he would constantly challenge me about Catholics not having a personal relationship with Jesus. And by and large, he was right. Like we don't, that's not usually a thing that we're known for right? We go to mass, right? We go to mass. Personal relationship? I don't don't know what that means, right? How do you you have a personal relationship, right? I've, I've come to see over the years, it's like, whoa, man, like, do you think that's all he wants with you? Like, that's stopping so far short of what he wants for you. It's so much deeper. I want to be implicated in everything that is yours, I want to impregnate your life with the beauty and glory and fire of my love. I want you to know my mercy in every atom of your body and being. I want to share life with you. I want to impregnate with your heart with the, the, the divine seed of my spirit. I want to fill you with life. We were talking about this when we were outside for dinner, right? First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the, the baby carriage, day. right? Like the relationship is it like it goes to deeper and deeper levels of love and intimacy that give forth life right that the lord not only loves us not only does he want to like like marry us to spend eternity with us but he wants to fill us with divine life it's in the bible right first peter god intends to divinize us right he intends to unite our nature with his nature that's the craziest crap like like what the what? Like I don't know what that means. Like to be totally honest with you, I have no freaking idea what that means. But holy crap is that crazy. Like the God who made the rings of Saturn, the God who banged the big bang, the God who split the Red Sea, like that God who is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the Alpha, the Omega, looks at my nature and says, I want it to be united to my nature. What? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if you know this God, but my nature, like, Mm -hmm. goes to the bathroom, (laughs) and, like, my nature (laughs) smells, and is weak, and super frail. (laughs) It's like, yeah, like, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. So, like, this right here, this is, if we don't know this, then we're, we, we're missing everything. When we talk about, like, when James Colway says, give us the gold, this is the gold, right? This is, this is the distillation of the story. This is the stuff that I like, I, like, I don't know how many minutes we're into it now, but, like, I, I never get to preach on this like this, you know? Because it's like this, yeah, there's just so much. Like I wanted to start with this because it's like this is the the cliffs like Ephesians five is like the cliffs note version of the Bible, right? Yeah. Like when I was in high school, I, I did I, I did a lot of cliffs note action. Okay, I'm i I'm not gonna lie, I'll admit it. I, I checked out cliffs notes on his honors English eleven, um, Mrs. Whitaker, if you're listening, I'm very sorry about that. So, um, yeah, it's the distillation of the story. The other image I had like when we were. Um, when we were in Rome and Assisi a few years ago with that T.O.B. pilgrimage, we went to a winery. Um, went to a winery in Tuscany, you know, <laughs> and uh, got a private tour of this centuries-old winery, and then a private wine tasting. It was marvelous. But part of the wine tasting was remember the balsamic that we got to taste at the end of it. I didn't know how like balsamic was named, it, but it's like super, super distilled, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Like this right here, what I just shared, like that's the balsamic, if you will, of the scriptures. That's the super distilled, that's the nectar, right? That's the heart of Christianity. It's the sum of the entire story. What's the point of that? There is no other, there is no other authentic Christianity. What I just told you is Christianity. And I'm really sorry if no one's really told it to you before. And, and, you know, before Brant Petrie or before this, like we suck as a church telling the goods. Right. We suck at like communicating this. And so the world comes up with their own version of what we think about all these things. It's like, holy smokes. No, like if you knew what we actually taught, you'd be banging down the doors of our church to get in. Like this is the heart of it. Like, this was the phrase that, I don't know if this is divinely inspired, I don't know, but I love this. And I, 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 I'll share it with you. That like The stunning proposal at the heart of the gospel is that at the heart of the gospel is a stunning proposal. That's the crazy crap. That at the <laughs> heart of the gospel, the stunning proposal, what we are proposing, what we are offering, the stunning proposal at the heart of the gospel is a shocking, stunning proposal. That God bends the knee before humanity before your humanity and says, I want you. Like the Sacred Heart of Jesus is the proclamation, it's the declaration that God is interested in you. As the kids say, he's swiped right or whatever it is, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm interested in you. Like, I'm interested in you. Will you marry me? Right? Will you marry me? Why
1: is it so uncomfortable for us to
0: receive this? Oh, I'm going to get there. Okay. I'm going to get there. Like, this is the lens, right? This is, this is, all of this, this is what's happening when you go to Mass. This is what's happening, this is what the sacraments are trying to do. This is what the Holy Spirit is trying to bring you into. This is what, this is what's happening, like, this is what the Bible is about. This is what the Holy Spirit's up to, right? It's this conspiracy of unfathomable love that we're being drawn, we're being wooed into relationship with love himself. And like you just said, Kelly, like, Like, you can sense the difficulty, why it's so difficult to actually do the work of evangelization, right? Like, because if this is the story, if this is the nectar at the heart of it, if you are the enemy, in order to confuse the most people about the beauty that they're being invited into, what's the thing that you would attack and twist the most? Sexuality, marriage, the nuptial union, mm-hmm. right? The reason why it is, it's uncomfortable is because we we live in a fallen world mm-hmm. that has been so profoundly pornified,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? It's it's a world that like the Im, the icon, right? Fame. The icon, mm-hmm. the image that points the reality mm-hmm. has been so distorted, and our hearts have been so malformed by what sex is. There's this cloud of shame that surrounds sexuality. There's a cloud of mis- of confusion, taboos, and all of these things, right? And, like, we carry that baggage in our hearts. There's a heritage that we carry in our hearts, right? And so, like, when we try to invite people into the heart of the mystery without first untwisting the icon, people get scandalized, right? So, like, back to the... Teresa before her cigarette, um, (laughs) right? You're right. You're like, let's just, like, with great reverence, it looks like she's experiencing some type of orgasmic, like, reality, right? Like, she's in the throes of ecstasy, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Ecstasy, ecstasis, literally translates to standing outside of yourself, Mm. right? She is outside of herself. She is in ecstasy, Right, so like through the lens of a portified mm-hmm. view of sexuality, it's like whoa, 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 whoa
1: like mm-hmm.
0: what, are you, what are you doing, bringing like, like putting that sex right. on right. Jesus? Like I don't like yep. you, like mm-hmm. what? Mm-hmm. So what's so much easier is just to remove like, like just to divorce these realities and say like that holiness is distinct from sexuality, holiness is distinct from sensuality, holiness is distinct from and actually found apart from the body and intimacy and everything that has to do with love and, and all of that stuff. In fact, you, you might get a kick out of this in particular because what I, what I do in every one of my, my, my marriage prep uh, sessions now, ever since marrying Mary Beth and Michael, there's a, there's the, there was a, there was a picture that was captured at their wedding when they're, when, at the very end when they're kissing each other. Right? So like they're like beautiful, wonderful, passionate kiss. And in the background... Is Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. And it's just like it's just a very powerful image. And what I'll tell couples when we start marriage prep is that one of the one of the ways that I understand my role in this journey is to help you see, and I'll bring up that picture, that the deepest like meaning, truth of what's going on here, and I'll point to them, like in all of their love for each other, like. The sensuality, the sexuality, the fact that they're they're so desiring to give themselves to each other. Like, all of this is actually pointing to and has its reference point in him on the cross. And then I'll say, but it goes further that, like, I also have to help you see that, like, the way that you actually understand what he's doing on the cross is actually revealed by what they're doing right there, right? Right? So, like, we have so divorced those realities in our modern Christian church, Um, and that's part of the reason why there's so much discomfort, right? For so many people, sex is dirty and tainted and shameful and associated with Mm -hmm. shame and baggage and wounds and Mm -hmm. dominance and, like, there's just so much, right? So then when we apply, like, the nuptial imagery or allow this nuptial imagery to come out of this story, people just, like, whoa, 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 like... I thought Jesus just wanted me to be nice.
1: (laughs) Doesn't doesn't he just want me to be nice?
0: Just like be nice, go to heaven? Isn't that Mm -hmm. like float on clouds, play harps? I don't know, fat baby angels, something? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, It's like, no, like it's so much deeper. It's so much richer. It's so much, it's so much fleshier,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: right? Like the gospel wants to touch your body. the gospel wants to touch your body the gospel wants to again with great reverence like the gospel is so much more romantic and it is so much more penetrating than just simply be nice it wants to get all the way in all the way in and like none of this is new or novel like like none of this was like invented by j p two this wasn't like like this wasn't just like some polish wackadoo who was like, "I'm going to make the world very uncomfortable' with some very very sexy imagery <laughs> it wasn't just like him being yeah, he wasn't just bored right right this is this is. This is written into the Bible, right? This is the this is the lens that like turns the Bible into a pop-up book, right? Most of us experience this story as all these disconnected people and places. But like the lens that, that turns this into a 3D pop-up book is the spousal lens. And you see it. It's I mean, like I said, it's it's in it's from Genesis to Revelation. It's in every book of the Bible. This imagery, this proposal, this relationship is on display. Especially in the prophets of the Old Testament, they're all talking about like the imagery of God, Yahweh, as bridegroom, Christ his first miracle. Like it was at wedding. the wedding feast of Cana, right? Yeah. It could have been anything, doing any miracle anywhere. But the word made flesh, the God made flesh, his first miracle was doing the job of the ancient Jewish bridegroom, which you learned in Jesus the bridegroom, right? Mm-hmm. It's the bridegroom's job to provide the wine. He provides the wine, right? Like, there, the parable when he says, okay, so this, this parable comes at the end of a result, end of, of several parables that he's trying to give about the kingdom. And I, the way I read this one, it's where Jesus says, the, a king threw a wedding feast for his son. And he invited everyone to it. I just, I just pictured Jesus being like, okay, friggin', how can I make this more clear for you? A king threw a wedding feast for his son. And he invited everyone to it! Are you with me? Right? Like, like these parents, they just get progressively more like, you dumb mortals, like, how can I make this more clear for you? Right? It's everywhere. It's everywhere, right? And not only is it everywhere in the Bible, it's also like, it's how the first Christians saw and understood the story, right? You see this in the art and iconography, and we're going to get into this, but... Like, it, it actually, all of this predates Christianity. This is how the Jews understood who God was. This is how the Jews understood their story. I want to go into this a little bit. Are we still good? Can I, we just, like, keep going? Okay. I'm doing good on my beer, but everyone, you can get a drink. We're, you know, song of songs. Here we go. All right. Can I ask a quick
1: question? Yes. Do the Jews see him as the
0: bridegroom? As, as, as who? Jesus as, as the bridegroom. Um, Jews that have converted do. So... Mm-mm. Yeah. Do
1: typical Jews have any thoughts on Jesus? I mean, he's not in their. Own I think. It, it, I mean,
0: it depends on the Jew, and it depends on like the the observance of Judaism that they they I mean, practice or ob- existed. I mean, yeah, Jesus existed.
1: they
0: they would say that he's a a false claimant to messiahship. That like the fact that he was crucified, um, the fact that his life ended that way, like that's not how messiah was supposed to succeed.
1: But they don't, they don't acknowledge any
0: no, Yeah, that's a pretty quick route to, res- to, to Christianity, becoming yeah. Christian. There's a great book uh, that Pope Benedict actually cites in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, that three-part series. There's a book called A Rabbi Talks with Jesus by Rabbi Jacob Neusner, who is a famous rabbi in New York City. But this rabbi, he, he goes through, he's saying, like, okay, if I was a Jew in the crowd listening to Jesus talk, if I was listening to him as a first-century Jew, knowing what I know, expecting what I'm expecting, would I follow him? Right? Right. And Rabbi Neusner says no. Because because of the authority he claimed over Torah, because of the authority he claimed over temple, right? He's saying, like, you like to claim that authority you have to be God. It's like, well, (laughs) what if he was? Right? Like Benedict's point in the in the book is that what he's missing is the corroborating evidence of the resurrection. The resurrection, like corroborates and verifies all of the things that he said, right? So when you take out the resurrection, no, you, you wouldn't follow him, right? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the temple real quick here, because uh, I don't know if this comes up in, in Petrie's book, but that the temple in Jerusalem was designed with specific instructions from the Lord to model, after the model, I know it might not seem it right at beginning here, but uh, after woman's body you like, that doesn't look like our body, right? <laughs> okay, but in spe- specifically, yeah. um, well, let me just keep pressing into this so we can keep going. All right, so, all right. So, um, yeah, the temple was designed after a woman's body in specific her, like, her, her genitalia. Is, we'll, get, we'll get to this. But also, when you read the Song of Songs, when the author is describing, when the author of Song of Songs is describing the bride, you don't know if he's describing a building a land or a woman, right? Like all of the imagery just kind of like kind of blends together. And if you could ask the author, are you describing a building, a woman or a land? He would say, yes, yes. There's a profound parallel between the temple, the Holy of Holies and woman's womb, right? So the temple had an outer court, had an inner court, and had the inner, inner court, right? The Holy of Holies. And that Holy of Holies was veiled by a curtain. And only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies past the curtain. So the high priest, in the Jewish iconography, the Jewish imagery, the high priest was the representative of Yahweh. He was the representative of God. He was therefore the, like, he was the bridegroom, right? So the, the high priest and the bridegroom, they're mystically one and the same. So only he, the bridegroom, could enter the, the Holy of Holies, where sacrifice was offered. And what is offered in the Holy of Holies? Grain offerings, seed offerings. Right, That's what grain is. It's seed. It's plant endosperm. That's what grain is. That's what wheat is. So why does the bridegroom offer grain and seed? Because that's the role of the bridegroom. That's what masculinity does, to give the seed. That leads to new life. Alright, so inside the Holy of Holies, the, the innermost court of the temple, right? This like the Holy of Holies, which is the meeting place between heaven and earth. Um, you hear this like this language in the Song of Songs. You hear this language in in the Psalms, the like um, how lovely is your dwelling place, how lovely is your dwelling place. Lord Mighty God, right describing the temple, describing the Holy of holies now here's the question where um, or what I guess who who that gives away who is the dwelling place of the Lord in the New Testament Mary, Mary, Mary the woman woman's body in particular woman's womb is the like, everything you read in the Old Testament that's talking about the temple, that's talking about the land, that's talk like, the fertility of the land, like, all of that is pointing to Mary, it's pointing to her womb, right? All of it was preparatory, like, the dwelling place of God, where does God come to dwell? He comes to dwell, not in stone and glass, he comes to dwell in the flesh of the virgin, Right? He comes to dwell in her womb. And then all throughout the Holy of Holies, there was this decorative symbol, this shape here called a mandorla. So a mandorla is this, it's an ancient iconographic symbol. It's the the interpenetration of two circles, right? The overlap of two circles representing the coming together of heaven and earth, the heavenly realm, the earthly realm coming together. This almond shape, is also a very feminine symbol of femininity and feminine openness and birth and new life. I have a friend who, uh, she's a, a nurse at, um, um, on the OB floor in one of the hospitals in Columbus, and I asked her one time, I said, like, does this remind you of anything, femininity, openness? She's like, oh yeah, I see that every day in the delivery room, <laughs> every day, right? I see that shape every day. Now look, I guarantee you, if you start looking for this shape, you're going to start seeing this shape all over Christian iconography. You just have never seen it before. As no one's ever pointed out. But here's here's some examples. You'll see the mandorla everywhere. This is the icon of of Christ's descent into hell. I mean, it's just everywhere. Our Lady of Guadalupe... Like, now that you're seeing it, you're like, yeah, I think I've seen that before, right? This is an icon called the, the Theotokos. It's Mary pregnant with the infant Christ. So, like, Mary opening... I'm going to go back here. Mary, in opening her body to receive him at the Annunciation and bringing forth Christ at, at Christmas, Right? Woman, woman's body, her womb has become the Holy of Holies, right? It's the, she is the dwelling place of the most high God. She is the, the inner court where God has come to dwell. It's just like, it's where heaven and earth embrace. Like Mary's womb was described by the church fathers as a bridal chamber as like the bridal chamber. It's the place The meeting place, the trysting place between heaven and earth. It's like the place where the union of heaven and earth happens. So here's the question. Where does the union between heaven and earth happen now? In the Eucharist. Upon our altars. In our churches. Which means that it's like when we go to Mass, it's like we're... So, this is going to sound weird, but it's true. It's mystical. We are celebrating mass. We are, it's like, we have like an inside view in Mary's womb of the Annunciation at every mass where the word becomes flesh. That's where we are, where the word becomes flesh. Like, is it any wonder that when you look at the way that our churches are built, are especially ancient, or not ancient, but like Gothic cathedrals, the, like the cathedrals in Rome, like St. Peter's Basilica, Like St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, surrounding the high altar, um, there's flowers, okay, representing the bride, openness, and bees, the great pollinators who bring the seed to the openness, right, birds and bees. And there's also the face of a woman on all four columns, and she's in the four stages of labor. Like her face is in these four stages of labor. She's giving birth. Like the altar of St. Peter's is surrounded by a woman giving birth. Mm -hmm. Like, what? Like, like Petrie didn't make this up. Mm -hmm. John Paul II didn't make this up, right? Like, Mm -hmm. again, all right, let's just pause for a second. If this imagery makes us uncomfortable, let's ask for the grace, just like, Holy Spirit, come, please, come untwist any of the images that that are, are getting blocked in our minds right now. Just, Holy Spirit, we ask you to just help us see, help us to receive Help us to receive, Lord. Give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see. So this is our faith. Like this is your faith. This is this this is the faith. And and the thing is, like, there's there's no going back now. Like now you know. You know, like now you know. Now you know. Like, there's no forgetting what you now know. Like, the heart of your faith is is, is not merely this admonition, be nice. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not the heart of the gospel. That's not the proposal. That's not what Jesus came and died to tell you. Just, just be nice. Get along. Raise good kids. Like, that's not the heart of the gospel. Like, the stunning heart of the gospel, this is one of my favorite statues, again, by Bernini. It's called Cupid and Psyche. It's depicting that uh, great ancient Greek story. But again, it's the image of heavenly eros and earthly humanity. Like, this is the heart of the gospel. That The stunning proposal at the heart of the gospel is itself a stunning proposal. Like, every time you go to Mass, like, the spousal lens, it has to begin shifting the way that you experience your discipleship. Like, what we're talking about, it has to begin shifting the way you, you live your life as a disciple. The integration of the spousal lens, the entire Christian life, Right? This this cannot be. Please God, let this not be just merely like boy that was an interesting book. What's the next book? You know? This has to be there has to be a shift. So like that's what I, I that's what I want to talk about. This is we're going into part 2. Part 2 of the talk. You ready for this? Yeah. Do we need more sangria or wine? I don't know. All right. All right. This is what this is the next part that I want to talk about is like how I how how the Lord wants to like shift this that like in particular how does knowing this affect the way that you approach prayer first of all and the sacraments namely uh confession and eucharist because you're not being rebaptized you're not being reconfirmed um you're very likely not going to receive anointing of the sick anytime soon you're already married you're not getting ordained you're going to go to confession and receive eucharist a lot right So, how is this lens gonna change those realities? How is that gonna change those realities? That's that's the next that's the last thing I want to land on here. Sound good? Make sense? All right. So we talk about prayer. uh, like when you were growing up, or like even right now, like what what how was prayer explained to you? Or how did you explain prayer to your kids? Conversation with God. Okay, good. Conversation with God. Did it start that way when they were little, little?
1: Yeah, I think that's how we always... I don't think we were taught that. Okay. So we tried to teach it.
0: Great. Kelly, you were shaking your head. I
1: think it always starts with uh, mass, but also formal prayers. Yeah. So the kids like the bedtime prayers. Right. Just regular, routine routine prayers. Right. And now I lay me down to sleep. Yeah.
0: A lot of petitioning. Yeah. Petitioning. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anything else? I, just, I think all that's very common. I think that's right. I think that's where, like, um, I think that is where most Catholic parents start, Christian parents start. When it comes to prayers, I mean, I do think a lot of, like, I mean, one of the, the very first thing you do is, like, the sign of the cross, right?
1: Should we start with
0: that picture of St. Teresa of Avila? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think you
1: start here. <laughs> Yeah. I know you're only. Uh huh.
0: No, that's exactly right. Right? Like, no, you don't jump to that point right away. Like, you start with the Did memorized prayers. <laughs> it would take a lot to make me comfortable. I hear confessions. <laughs> So, yeah, you start with, like, the memorized prayers, the rote prayers, right? The sign of the cross, the, the guardian angel prayer, the our father, prayer before meals, right? These are the words you say to interact with God, right? It's like, here's the script to, so, like, start talking to this person that you can't see, you, you, you mm-hmm. can't touch or feel, but, like, trust me, he's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's better than Santa Claus, right? Like, believe me, he's there, right? All of those things. So, at a certain point, though, um, in all of our maturation and discipleship um, like devotional saying your prayers is just not enough right maybe you reach that crisis point at some point in your discipleship you walk with the Lord where, where like like the curveballs of life come and like I don't need a script I don't need to be saying words at God I like I need a real person like you were saying Tara like the conversation I, I, I need to know how to talk to this one who is apparently the almighty who loves me, who's all powerful. I don't know how to talk to you, right? So like prayer is meant, it ought to like segue into deeper conversation to deeper relational dynamics. That's what prayer is meant to do. So if I could put it this way, prayer, prayer is the relational dance of vulnerability. Prayer is letting yourself be known. Like, ever more deeply by God. And in that process, coming to know ever more deeply. Like, prayer is, 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 is the relational dance. Um, paragraph 2567 of the Catechism. Just jot that one down. I should have put that in here, but paragraph 2567. I just feel like Rain Man right there. 2567 um, says that God calls man first man may forget his creator or hide far from his face he may run after idols or accuse the deity of having abandoned him but the living and true God tirelessly pursues man Mm -hmm. and calls each one to this mysterious encounter known as prayer in prayer God's initiative always comes first Mm -hmm our first step is always a response. Paragraph 2567. God's initiative always comes first. Our our first step is always a response. Like prayer, it's the sharing of hearts. One of the best ways that you can begin to understand your prayer life or the kind of prayer life that the bridegroom wants with you is to begin thinking about the beauty and struggles of your your communion and conversation with your spouse, right? That the Lord gave you a spouse to be an icon of his love, right? Um, That if marriage is the icon, if it's the image that that best, that is the least inadequate image for describing how God wants to relate to us, then your marriages, your communion is meant to be a sign of the holy communion that the Lord wants with you. So in your communion, in your relationship with your spouse, long before they were your spouse, and long before you knew them, they were a stranger to you. You didn't know them, right? Um, And at a certain point, this person showed up in your life, right? Uh, I'm just going to ask you, Jen, where did you meet Frank? Where did you first see Frank? Okay, that was the first time you, like, saw him. Was that the first time you talked to him? Later
1: that night, we talked.
0: Okay. So before that, Frank and Jen were not on each other's radars. And then through the Lord's providence, he brought you onto each other's radars. There he is, and there she is, right? At a certain point, you began talking. And in that talking, like, hi, my name is Jen. What's your name? My name is Frank. The tank, right? <laughs> so you began with your identities, right? Your names. And then from there, you progressively began to let yourself be known, right? All of you, your relationships with your spouses. That's how it, that's how it happens. That's how love happens, right? This person shows up, and in the dynamics, there's an invitation to vulnerability, to let yourself be known because guess what? We're not mind readers, right? I'm sure there's been plenty of instances in your marriages where you've been treating each other as mind readers, right? And there's been a lot of conflict in that. Like, how, come, how did you not know that, right? <laughs> right? Um, but the, way that you, like, the reason why you treat each other as mind readers is because you want to be known. You want to be effortlessly known and perfectly known, Right? When you think about the course of your relationship, um, the intimacy grew in the measure that you were willing to be vulnerable and letting yourself be known to this other person by sharing things with them, by letting them know your past, to know your dreams, to know your hopes, desires, what you want out of family and life, all of those things. You start sharing stories, all of that, and in that sharing, in that letting yourself be known, you're letting this person in farther and farther. Right? Farther and farther. And then you get to a certain point where you realize, I've never let anybody in this far. And I want to let him in all the way. I want to go on the journey of, of seeking to let this other person know everything there is to know about me. And the same thing for him. And that's why you became spouses. Right? That's why you got married. That's why you have a spousal relationship. Right? That's, if, if you can begin to see that horizontal dynamic and flip it to the vertical, that's prayer. That's what God desires out of prayer. Prayer is the relational dance of vulnerability, of letting your heart become known to God. Like the sharing of hearts. But here's the thing, right, if prayer, is all, if prayer is spousal sharing, when you think about your relationship with your spouse, sometimes your sharing is very, very deep, right? Like, kids have gone to bed, and it's just you two, face-to-face, really hashing things out. Maybe it's deep wounds, deep pain, deep hurts. Maybe there's forgiveness that has to be given, or suddenly, like, I have to let you in on this. Like, there's very deep, deep sharing, but there's also like a lot of very shallow sharing. Like you're not constantly living at like thirty thousand feet beneath sea level, right? Especially as kids come along, like I, you don't need me to tell you this. Like that's not very often that you're living thirty thousand feet beneath sea level, right? There's a lot of like just barely connecting, right? If that's the if that's how spousal sharing actually is, we should also expect that that's also how prayer is, right? Like, I I, I don't know when I I came to this realization, but I I realized one day that I I had been carrying in my heart this expectation that every time I go to prayer, every time I go to pray, if it's not this mystical, levitating, life-changing transverberation of Teresa of Avila and ecstasy, I must be doing it wrong. And like, not every time you're sharing with your spouse are you sharing like that. Far more often, it's just the casual, beautiful sharing of your life, sharing of your heart, right? It's okay that it's surfacey. It's really okay. All he's simply asking is, I want to know you. I want to know you. What's that? What do you want for dinner? <laughs> yeah. That's like, the Lord would love to have that conversation. He would. Like that, like, and then every once in a while, he'll just take, he'll take you to a depth where you're like, whoa. But like the expectation of sometimes it's very deep and sometimes it's very shallow. And that's okay. It is a commitment. It's a commitment to letting yourself be known by the Lord. Right? There's that, there's that horrifying moment in the gospel where Jesus is talking about, there will be those who come knocking on the door and saying, Lord, Lord, do we not drive out demons in your name? Do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not share the gospel in your name? And he will say, depart from me, you evildoers, for I never knew you. Like, that's terrifying to me. Like, the prospect that you could, you could work for the Lord all your life, and by the end of it, he says, but I never knew you. Because you never let me know you. You never took the time and let me in. And all he's asking is let me in. Right? The bridegroom comes in the Song of Songs, knocking on the door of the bride, saying, Open to me, my sister, my bride. Open to me. Open to me. Will you let, will you let me know you? Prayer is letting yourself be known. Look at the next quote. Quote six. The great mystical tradition of the church of both East and West shows how prayer can progress as a genuine dialogue of love to the point of rendering the person wholly possessed by the divine beloved, vibrating at the spirit's touch, resting filially within the father's heart. This is a journey totally sustained by your self-effort and will and
1: working really hard at it.
0: How hard you work. No, no, no. This is a journey totally sustained by grace, which nonetheless demands an intense spiritual commitment and is no stranger to painful purifications known as the dark night. But it leads in various possible ways to the ineffable joy experienced by the mystics as nuptial union. Again, the only one who's limiting how deep the Lord gets into you is you. That's also terrifying. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. So what does this look like? I just want to teach you very quickly an acronym that changed my life. A-R-R-R. First A stands for acknowledge. Then you have Relate receive, and respond. Acknowledge, relate, receive, respond. These are the four steps, if you will, to entering into the waltz of of prayer with the Lord. Acknowledging is you become aware of everything that's, that's in your heart. What's going on in there? Without judgment, without filtering, without any kind of photoshopping, you become aware of it, acknowledging it, And then you relate it. You tell the Lord all about it, again, without Photoshopping it, without sugarcoating it. With great courage and confidence, you just tell the Lord all the things, right? The image I always have of this is puking over the toilet, right? You puke, and a lot comes out. And you're like, okay. But then you puke again, and, like, more stuff comes out. But not as much the first time, Then you're like, okay, then you puke again and still some comes out, but not again, not as much. And you keep puking and puking until you're like dry heaving, right? There's like, you get to a point where there's like, there's nothing left to give you. Like there's nothing left to empty out of me, right? That's the relating. Like you just are telling the Lord everything. He's like, I'll take it. (laughs) Like just puke on me, right? And then you enter into this posture of receiving. This is the hardest part. Just like, all right, Lord, then I'm going to trust that you want to communicate to me. And you have made me the kind of creature that can, res- that, can- that can hear you. Like, I'm not like, it's not like God is speaking like in radio waves and I just am not a radio. <laughs> like, he's speaking as God and he, may- he says, you are my sheep. You will hear my voice. Sometimes he speaks in memories, in songs, in clips, in scripture verses. He might speak in a a feeling of peace, all of these things. But he is speaking. Are you aware of what he's saying? This is the part where we so quickly judge, like, ah, that's not God. That's just my imagination, right? That's not the Lord speaking. That's just my mind. Or we just say, like, um, yeah, we just so mistrust our prayer. The Lord is speaking. And then we respond however seems appropriate to what he has said acknowledge, relate, receive, respond this is how you enter into the dynamics of letting yourself be known and that's how you get to know the heart of the one who's talking to you does that make sense? Mm-hmm. so that's prayer, let's talk about confession what was confession uh, like if you were to describe like, again, how, would, how did you explain confession as a parent to your kids or how was confession explained to you as a, when you were a little kid or how, what was your experience or understanding of confession?
1: There's what you say and what you think. It is. No. <laughs> say that again? <laughs> whole, what you tell your kids, oh, it's the grace of God and you'll feel so much better. He was going to forgive you. And you're going to mm-hmm. you know, tell him, talk through the priest. Yeah, know, yeah. Be, and then there's like what you really think, like, oh my gosh, it's so scary. You're <laughs> just like scary. Really ask for forgiveness, but, you know, it shouldn't be scary, yeah. You know, Humbling.
0: Humbling. Yeah.
1: Humiliating
0: is a better word sometimes. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I think the. Um, I mean, I think like the childlike perspective of confession, or at least as a priest who hears confessions of a lot of kids, grade school kids and whatnot, <laughs> the the perspective is like confession is simply where um, it's a scary thing, where I I list all, I, I say the things uh, all the things where I broke the rules. Um. <laughs> And I just get forgiven. It's the writing of the scales, right? Like my sins of like, and like he takes that off and back to back to even, right? It's merely it's merely the forgiveness of sins, the naming of wrongs. All right, under the lens of the spousal love of God, the spousal bridegroom love of Jesus, confession is the bride getting naked before the bridegroom to experience the powerful recreating. Love and tenderness of his gaze. To experience the shock that he still loves me after all of this. That he loves me in my unloveliness. That I am loved when I am totally seen with all my masks off. Because I know If I'm only loved when I'm wearing masks, then I know that I'm not really loved. But confession is the place, it's the safest place on earth for the heart to come out from hiding and to experience the shock that you still find me desirable and lovable and beautiful and that there's something like, like the old Superman comics or movies, like when he would do like the, the like the laser beams from his eyes, like there's power that comes out of his eyes. There's something that happens when those eyes look upon my deepest unloveliness. Like that's what rests restores, that's what redeems that's what heals, that's what sanctifies, that's the, the radiation applied to the tumor there's something um, so powerful about confession that I just was not expecting as a priest what you experience as a priest in confession is, is most people don't know what they're doing, there most people think of confession like, um, like a spiritual laundromat, mm-hmm. right? And, like, and I, the priest, hold the mystical tied-to-go pen, and they've come to me with their stained soul, and they're like, can you just take care of this, right? You just clean up the soul. Most people experience confession that way, but every once in a while, someone comes to confession who just experiences, Exposes their hearts like they're responding like the first question that God asks in the Bible is in Genesis immediately after the fall God asks and says Adam meaning humanity where are you where are you because they hid in their shame and they hid behind the fig leaves it's so incredible when someone comes to confession who comes there to get naked, right? The the confession is meant to be the place where the bride responds to the voice of the bridegroom in the Song of Songs when he says to her, he says, "My, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding places on the mountainside, the bridegroom says, show me your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Like, when someone comes to confession as a response to that, like the bridegroom says, let me, I, I want to see. you." Like, if prayer is letting yourself be known, confession is letting yourself be seen. It's letting yourself be seen. Because from the beginning, from Eden, we've been hiding in the fig leaves. We've been hiding our hearts, right? Confession is the stripping where the bride gets naked before the bridegroom, with all of this nervousness, with all of the anxiety of wondering, will you still love what's behind this? Or will you condemn this? Uh, Maybe some of you have heard me share this analogy. I think I shared it at the Cleveland Women's Conference years ago. but someone sent me uh, an email with a video link and uh, the, the title of the video was Burn Victim Let's Boyfriend Remove Her Makeup. Um, now, I don't usually watch like makeup videos okay, on YouTube, but I was like, okay, I'm interested in this. So I clicked on the video and what you see is this woman. And I'm like, she's beautiful. Not realizing this is the burn victim. So as you watch the video, you see her boyfriend just slowly and very, very tenderly removing the layers of makeup she has on. And you can tell that she's really nervous, and you can tell that he just feels so, like, privileged. He keeps saying, like, I'm just so honored by this. I can't believe you're letting me do this. And she takes her wig off, and he rushes in. And at a certain point, like, she just can't, like, look at him. She can't bear the thought of what are in his eyes when he sees me with all my makeup gone, with all of my, yeah, with all of the fig leaves removed. he just like embraces her and she she's just overwhelmed by it now granted I, I'm a celibate but I'm pretty sure when it comes to spousal intimacy a, a stripping of sorts is uh, required um, I don't know from personal experience but I'm pretty sure order for all of that to go down it's gotta be a nakedness I mean, if I'm wrong, this would be a great time to tell me. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty exposed up here. Yeah, right? That the poverty of getting naked before the beloved, that's confession. That's confession. Like Confession is the prerequisite for the embrace that's coming that's like, that's that's why the church says you go to confession before you receive Eucharist. If you've got mortal soul, if you if you've chosen to hide behind the fig leaf, then you need to go to confession in order to get naked again before you receive the bridegroom. Like it's so important for us to remember. My God, this is so important for us to remember that that Eucharist, not confession. Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. The Eucharist, not confession, is the source and summit of our faith. The forgiveness of sins, the reception of mercy, it's all merely preparatory for the one flesh union with the bridegroom in the Eucharist. So many Catholics, so many Catholics have come to think that, like, I think they've inverted it. They've come to think that the the that the supreme sacramental gift is the forgiveness of sins. No. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. But it's not the supreme gift. Like, the nectar of the faith is not the forgiveness of sins. It's the union with the bridegroom in the one flesh of the Eucharist. Like, that's, like, that's the gift. That's the gift. Again, Eucharist. When you think about what was the Eucharist, what was Mass when you were growing up as a kid, I very much doubt You thought of Mass, or as the Eucharist, as what John Paul II described, it's the sacrament of the Bridegroom and the Bride. That's what he describes it as. Not, mind you, not matrimony, where you actually have a Bridegroom and a Bride. That's not the sacrament of the Bridegroom and the Bride. The Eucharist is the sacrament of the Bridegroom and the Bride. Every Mass is where Heaven and Earth are wedded together on your tongue. Heaven comes and lands upon the throne of your tongue. Just take a second at some point and just contemplate what the heck your tongue is. I mean, like, it's the place where God first touches you. What the heck? What the heck? It's the sacrament of the bridegroom and the bride where the two become one flesh, where the bride walks down the aisle, where the bridegroom is waiting for the bride and he gives himself he gives himself. There is no contraception in the Eucharist. There is nothing withheld. There is nothing withheld. Every validly celebrated Mass, there is nothing contracepted. The only contraception that can happen at Mass is in the bride. And I think a lot of faithful Catholics for a lot of different reasons have rendered themselves closed to the gift. I don't, want to rec- I don't want to receive the beauty of your love. I don't want you to get that close to me. I don't want you to change my life. I don't want you to recreate me. I, don't want- I just want a casual relationship with you. I just want to be a good Catholic who just goes to mass, who checks off the box I don't wanna get pregnant with divine life because that would change things. Because I've heard pregnancy changes
1: things.
0: (laughs) Every mass, there's meant to be conception. Every single mass. But let me be very clear though, lest there's some uneasiness with the imagery G- uh, this is good. I just uh, all I can do is just say it bluntly because I think that's helpful. Jesus in the Mass, in the Eucharist, is not having sex with the church. That's not the way the analogy goes. Jesus is Jesus in the Mass are not like sex. Sex is like Jesus in the Mass. That's the way the analogy goes. Sexual intimacy is the sign of that points to the even greater reality of what's happening in the mass. And I know most Catholics don't experience it that way. And again, like, do you see why, like, evangelization is hard for us today? Because all of this imagery has been so hijacked and has been taken by the enemy. But this is what's actually going on. Listen to this quote. Look at quote number seven. So you ask, like, is this a new thing? No. Augustine of Hippo, 4th century. Every celebration of the Eucharist is a celebration of marriage. The church's nuptials are celebrated. The king's son is about to marry a wife, and the king's son is himself a king. And the guests frequenting the marriage are themselves the bride. For all the church is Christ's bride, of which the beginning and first fruits is the flesh of Christ. Because there was the bride joined to the bridegroom in the flesh. I want to read uh, an excerpt here uh, from my, my master's thesis on this very topic. So bear with me here. The Eucharist, John Paul II describes, is the sacrament of the bridegroom and of the bride. It is the place and event where and in which the bride and bridegroom become one flesh, as once happened in the womb of the Virgin the flesh and souls of the faithful have become the trysting place where heaven tabernacles on earth. John Paul II goes on to say in, a firm powerfully, in powerfully clear words, Christ, in instituting the Eucharist, thereby wished to express the relationship between man and woman, between what is feminine and what is masculine. It is a relationship willed by God in both the mystery and, of creation and in the mystery of redemption. In other words, what Christ did the night before he died and what he did on the cross have their deepest meaning in the primordial love of man and woman, in the two-in-one flesh union and their call to become one flesh. Let us pause for a moment to ponder more deeply John Paul II's statements about the Eucharist, the deepest truth of human sexuality, according to JP2, is revealed through the Eucharist. In fact, in giving us his body in the Eucharist, the gift of himself as bridegroom, Christ wanted to reveal the deepest meaning of our bodies as male and female. It is in the Eucharist that Christ fully reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. Conversely, when all the confusion is cast out and all the distortions untwisted, we discover that the deepest meaning of human sexuality, of being made male and female, is its signification signification of the Eucharist. The holy communion of man and woman in one flesh is a great mystery that is meant to signify the holy communion of Christ and the Church, consummated in the Eucharist. In other words, human sexuality, the love between husband and wife and their one flesh union is like Christ's spousal love for the church in the Eucharist. The real marriage is between Christ and the church. All of our earthly marriages are metaphors for and images of Christ's spousal union. The real one flesh union is holy communion. Married conjugal love is an icon of Christ's self-gift to the church. Like, that's what's going on when you just when you say amen. So we're going to land this plane. If you smoke them, if you got them, smoke them. Um, but I just want to like, I guess, maybe pause and just kind of ask the question, where do we go from here? Um, there's, there's a lot of books that I would recommend. There's a lot of podcasts that I, could, I would recommend. Um, those of you who haven't read this book, read this book. Um, Jen, you brought, what did you bring? So this book, uh, is this Bla- Blaise Armijan? Is that the guy? So this book is a verse-by-first commentary of the Song of Songs, and it is nectar. It is gold. It is so good. Um, there's a lot of books I can I can send a, an email with different you know titles and things like that. There's some really wonderful podcasts that I can recommend, but I guess the one of the biggest thing is I, I, I really wanted you to have these quotes because I really wanted you to take them to prayer. I want you to just like sit with them and reflect on them. In particular, that uh, six paragraph sixteen seventeen from the Catechism, the integrating lens of everything in our faith is the spousal analogy, the union of Christ and the bride and the Church. Um, and so, like that, just means that, like, when you when you are reading the readings, getting ready for Mass on Sunday, you need to be asking the bridegroom, what are you whispering to my heart? What do you want to like implant in my heart? Um, when you're preparing for confession, you need to stop thinking about it through the lens of merely what sins do I need to confess that will right the scales of justice, and start thinking about it in. Behind which fig leaves am I hiding? Um, What masks and costumes am I wearing? Where do I need to get naked? Um, Where am I so afraid of being seen? That's where you need to let the love of Jesus the bridegroom love you in confession. When it comes to prayer, you need to begin thinking about it not so much as saying prayers, but the living spousal relationship, the dynamic, the vulnerability dance of Letting yourself be known, right? Like telling the Lord about your day, telling the Lord about like what's going on. Um, my favorite, one of my favorite lines in all of the scriptures is on the road to Emmaus when Jesus asked the disciples, he says, what sort of things? <laughs> so they're walking along and he says, what are you two discussing as you walk along the way? And they say, are you the only one? in Jerusalem, who doesn't know the things that have gone on in these days. And like, it's the the world's biggest divine eye roll. He's like, oh my God,
1: like,
0: I think I know, right? But he doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says, what sort of things? He is a beggar before your heart who wants to know you and what's going on inside of you. Ugh. Oh, that was a lot. I don't know how long we went, but that was that was great. Let's um, let's end with a prayer and maybe we can do some Q&A. If you want to do some Q&A. Anybody need to go to the bathroom and get a drink or whatever? We can do that too. All right, let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Oh, Jesus, you are the divine bridegroom. You are so good. Your love is madness. Lord, we thank you for the absurdity of your pursuit of us into our own insanity into our own rebellion into our shame into our isolation and fear and anxiety and all of our hiding and masking and manipulating lord you just don't stop and we thank you we're happy to be the one sheep that you're coming after Jesus, tonight I ask you to seal deep in the hearts of my dear sisters here any truth or beauty or goodness that you planted there. Let it be brought to birth through the intercession of your mother, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we give this night and all glory to our Father as we pray. All glory to the Father and to the Son and, and to the, the Holy Spirit, Spirit. As it as was as in the, the beginning, beginning, is now and never shall be. World without end. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Woo! Yeah. Father,
1: how do you teach people this? Like, we didn't learn this. I know, I was thinking well, about Who, who aren't, I mean, like, all of us, I think, can relate to sexuality because mm-hmm. we're married and, you know, older women and everything. But how do you teach a 15-year-old Yeah, like, how do we this? teach the youth yeah. this? Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's the million-dollar question. Um, I guess my I have two I have two thoughts on that. That that JP two uh, in an ideal
1: mm-hmm.
0: world he would envision that theology of the body would not be taught in classrooms, but it would be like imparted in family rooms, yep. mm-hmm. right? So, like in an ideal world, the theology of the body institute would work itself out of existence. Um, that T O B C L E would work itself out of existence, right? That like, um, part part of yeah, I mean that's a huge huge question. Part part of the way that I approach it or I think about it is every couple that I prepare for marriage, I like I I I go really deep and I take a lot of time with them. Mm-hmm. You know, like Michael and Mary Beth will tell you, like it's it's a lot, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I I tell them up front that like. I'm preparing you with your children in mind. Like I'm, I'm talking to you knowing that like there are invisible, non-existent little ones who God's going to give you that need a mom and dad who know how to talk about this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I prepare them with that in mind, uh, so that all of this stuff would be just part of the, the Mm -hmm. family dynamic. Um, but again like that's not everybody so like what do we do for that like i can tell you i'm spending the entire year you know just teaching my 8th graders an in-depth journey and introduction to tob it's, we're trying to do things in the diocese you know with like we've integrated tob in the k through 8 and now k through 12 curriculum but all of that will be effective in the measure that it's it takes root and you know um, is conceived in the heart of the teachers, which still needs a lot of prayer and intercession. I don't know if that's going to happen, you know. Um, and Jen will be the first one to tell you that, right? But the uh, the I, I think when we start thinking in terms of like how can I how how are we supposed to teach this to the to the to the billions? Like the like when it comes to those math and numbers, like the Lord never worried about the billions; He worried about the one, you know. Um, all I know is like I have like three little grapes on the vine in the vineyard that the Lord has asked me mm-hmm. to be responsible for and I'm giving this to them and like mm-hmm. who are the three little grapes in in the vineyard that you're responsible for that you you can start giving this to in some measure you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah you're
1: maybe one of my grapes What's that? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're one of my grapes cuz I was your future you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I claim you. Mm-hmm. So does there, has everybody heard that? what your three great story i don't know well i think you should make sure everybody knows what you're talking
0: about so yeah i'll share that story so when the um the pennsylvania grand jury thing broke and the theodore mccarrick scandal broke i think that was summer 2018 Mm -hmm. i think just Mm -hmm. all that awful awful sex abuse stuff that broke um i think a lot of us in like the american church we all thought like That was a early two thousand thing. Like we're 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 done with that. Like we're we're good. And then uh, it just was like holy crap. And it was the first time I felt like nervous to wear clerics out in public, and Mm -hmm. I had someone throw something at me in Coventry, and it was like awful. And uh, anyway, I just like for weeks I was just so broken up about it, trying to tell the Lord, you know, like what am I? What do you want me to do about this? Like what are we supposed to do about this? Because I kept feeling like I was a janitor working in the like, this building, this skyscraper in Manhattan, this Fortune 500 company, and all these people on the street were, like, you know, talking about this huge embezzlement scandal happening on the 52nd floor, being like, what's going on up there? And I'm like, I don't know, I just freaking clean the garbage, I take out the trash, like, I'm just, that's, and I just kept feeling like, Lord, what am I supposed to do about this? And in prayer, the Lord just, like, very clearly one day, he, like, had me following him in this, this huge vineyard. Like a big, uh, like Napa Valley, rolling hills kind of vineyard. We walked. Like Tuscany Like Tuscaname. Like, oh, Tuscany. (laughs) Yes. He brought me to this one section of the vineyard, and he brought me to this one cluster of grapes on a vine, and then he pointed to these three grapes on this one cluster of grapes. And he goes, you see these grapes? He's like, these are your grapes. These are the grapes you are in charge of. Mm -hmm. He's like, This is, at the time I was a communion of saints. He's like, This is communion of saints. Mm -hmm. This is all I'm asking you to be in charge of. I'm not asking you to preach to the papal household. I'm not asking you to be an archbishop. I'm not asking you to change a dicastery. I'm asking you, Will you be good to these grapes? I'm like, Okay. And that just, it like gave me so much freedom. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: like a naked confession. You know? Yeah. But you can't have that every time you go to confession. You know, so sometimes when I go to confession, it's not <laughs> very deep. It's truly the same yeah. sins that we struggle with, yeah. you know? So, you know, I'm giving be a little monotonous, you know? Yeah, but so I, mean, I was, you still want to go for that grace, but I yet I know, like, do I bring up the left, you know, mm-hmm. the deeper confession? But no, you've already received forgiveness mm-hmm. for, you know, for I, forgiveness.
0: I think... I think what's important there is to begin asking, like... So the the sins that you're routinely confessing are just merely the fruits growing on the tree, right? And those are symptomatic of deeper things. They're symptomatic of um, deeper wounds, deeper lies, deeper, like, vows you have, like, made and agreements that you've made with the enemy, things that go back a long way in your story, things that say like when something happened when you were a little girl and like you made maybe unconsciously this inner vow that said, I will never allow myself to feel weak. Right? And like you live the rest of your life with this, um, this disposition, this attitude that like you do all these things to hide weakness. And those are the things that you end up confessing because it comes out looking like, Irritation at my husband. It comes out as a sort of aggressiveness towards strangers. It comes out as an impatience in lines. It comes out as a controlling... Um, all these things, right? And all of that is coming from this deeper place of... I felt really weak. And I felt really powerless when this thing happened. And so, like, it's fine to confess those things... But, like, confession will start to change your life when you begin to, like, confess that deep thing. When you begin to show the Lord in confession that deeper thing. Like, cancer has all sorts of symptoms that go along with it, right? But the doctors aren't interested in treating the symptoms, they're interested in treating the tumor, right? The more that we can begin. Allowing the radiation of that absolution, if you will, the more we can allow that gaze of mercy to penetrate and look upon those deeper tumors that are like the, like, that's the sort of nuclear, like, warehouse in our souls that keeps generating sinfulness, right? The more we can allow the Lord to start pouring mercy into those places, that's when even quick Confessions can become very, very powerful because um, you're exposing the like the stronghold of the enemy. Like those are the places where the enemy has his stronghold. Like, no, I want light in there. I want light in that memory. I want light in that wound. I want light in that lie that says I got to do it on my own. Right? I need light in that lie that says like I'm just convinced I'm not beautiful. I'm just convinced I'm. Second rate. I'm convinced because of this that I'm just something that can be passed off on, right? That's where you want the mercy of the Lord, that light to shine into that place. Um, does that? I hope that makes sense. You know, as
1: we're going through it, I can I believe I'm this. When they're teaching it in eighth grade or whatever, I mean, that you know, you're an eighth grader. It's a very unusual eighth
0: grader who really absorbs all that. And I have Catholic schooling my whole life, and so this, I'm like, how do I miss? So that? I'll, I'll give you probably a, a, a somewhat scandalous answer that I've been just thinking about for a little while about why it's so obscure for us. Um, in the modern church, and a lot of it has to do with like the liturgical changes that happened after Vatican II. Okay, so the mass that most Catholics experience. This, um, I yeah, just okay? I, I want this cushion. This is what I want for my butt, and I would love.
1: Or a pillow. Right there. Yeah, this is all I want. Oh Lord. Oh.
0: I was offering it up. <laughs> I wasn't, Jane. I wasn't. There was, there was. All
1: the merit went out the door. Admitted that it was not
0: being offered. I would. Can I get a a water though? Can I just get some water? That'd be great. Okay. All right. So, the average Catholic experiences Sunday Mass at their average suburban parish, with the average liturgy, right? Um, the same kind of schmaltzy. We gather hymns. Um... See what happened after.
1: <laughs> okay,
0: so what happened? The Second Vatican Council never called for a new mass. Okay, so the council fathers in the document Sacrosanctum Concilium. Trust me, this is getting to an answer to your question. They they did call for some reforms. To the Latin Mass, right? Thank you. Um, hold that thought. Oh, living water. All right. So they did call for some reforms. They didn't call for a wholesale change of everything. Um, the Mass that we experience as the, as the Novus Ordo Mass, the average Sunday Mass, um, it's 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 not exactly what the church intended in the second Vatican council we're still only 50 something years after that council you look at church history it takes about 100, 150 years for get your empty
1: soldiers out there should I <laughs> I
0: won't I promise I won't send them that clip of you saying the thing about the thing <laughs> <laughs> um the uh, da, 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 da. church history about 100-150 years for councils to be incorporated mm-hmm. and integrated mm-hmm. into the church so we're barely really into it um, I, I'm very interested to see what will the mass look like when I'm like an old, old priest um, assuming I don't die in a gulag somewhere So, um, <laughs> but the uh, so if you were if let me put it this way the average Catholic in the 1940s, 1950s had the amazing benefit of a culture that still upheld the norms of monogamy, exclusivity, mm-hmm. marriage, family, sexuality, mm-hmm. right? The huge families. Like, people knew that sex makes babies. People knew that, um, mm-hmm. they, they knew what sex was, right? They knew the life-givingness, they, they like the facts of life as they were called people knew them it was all over the place right families with like the average family like 10 12 kids being kind of the norm and you know like like my my last parish communion of saints at one point there was like three thousand kids in that school mm-hmm. now there's like 130 and like that feels kind of a lot for that building i don't know it, it's unfathomable but there was a point in time where people knew the facts of life and like that was also tied to a liturgy that very clearly expressed the role of the bridegroom giving, like offering himself in sacrifice to the bride and like all of that symbolism was more clearly on display. Like the the women wearing veils, the bride being veiled, like all of that symbolism mattered, and it was communicating stuff. Maybe not on a powerful intellectual level that everyone understood, um, but it was it was deeper in the blood. It was deeper in the, the culture. It was deeper in their ethos. And so when you have, like, when you combine the sexual chaos of the sexual revolution with contraception, with the liturgical chaos, what you have is, like, a, a church... It's filled with people who don't know what sex is and they don't know what liturgy is. So, like, all of the symbolism, the natural symbolism, is gone, which means that all of the liturgical symbolism is gone. So, like, we have generations now where people ha- don't know the facts of life. We live in a world where the phrase accidental pregnancy is a f- phrase that people use. Like, well, were you having sex? Yes. Do you know that that's what sex does? Yeah. Okay, so like So like, because of of the contraception revolution in the 1960s you know, you talk about the lenses that the world is wearing people are viewing the world through a lens where sex and babies have been divorced which means that when it comes to the, like that imagery like they don't know... If you don't know what sex is, you don't actually know what the Mass is. If you don't know what sex is, you don't what, you don't know what the liturgy is. You don't know what any of the symbolism is. Like, you, you, you cease being able to hear like, what's actually being proclaimed. I'm telling you, it's in the prayers. It's in the prayers. It's in the orations. It's in the Eucharistic prayers. It's in the symbolism. Like, okay, like, just think for a minute of the 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 Easter Vigil ritual, the Easter Vigil, uh, the baptismal ritual, right? You've got the Paschal candle, okay, which is the symbol of Christ, a rather phallic symbol, if you will, okay, (laughs) and the baptismal font, which in the prayer over the font is described as the womb of the church, and to like sanctify the waters, the candle enters into the baptismal font several times. That's a pretty obvious symbol Never got any if you that. know if like if you if you know this symbol like that like it just translates but when like, <laughs> but like all of that stuff all of that stuff is is is. People don't have the lenses to see it. It's all right in front of you. Mm. But they don't have the lenses to see it because we live in a world that's been just so formed by contraception mm. that like it, which has deformed our understanding mm. of sexuality. If you don't understand sexuality, mm. the natural icon, you won't understand the thing that it's symbolizing. So there's So where's there.
1: it all going to end? <laughs> in the Thank triumph God dead. <laughs> in
0: the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. <laughs>
1: I'm not going to Hang on, no, no. Say it again. It's going to end with the
0: triumph of the Immaculate Heart.
1: Praise be Jesus Christ. Yes.